I live in Europe, and it's incredibly easy to travel here. By bus, train or plane, I can be in any other European country in a matter of hours, for pretty cheap. But while I'm in other countries, I still want to check my emails, check my YouTube analytics and all that fun stuff. Well, by using Surfshark VPN, I changed my location to France using one of their 3200 plus servers, and I'm no longer annoyed by thousands of emails from Google freaking out saying, Oh my god, there's a computer in Spain trying to hack you! There isn't Google. It's me. And thanks to Surfshark, I'm no longer bothered by these annoying messages. Use the link in the description or episode notes to get Surfshark VPN today for as little as $2.30 per month on a two-year plan, and log into all your accounts anywhere with zero hassle and no annoying emails. With continual development in technology, hackers and cyber criminals are getting better and better at installing viruses and hacking your electronic devices. We've all had antivirus software, but your run-of-the-mill software just isn't good enough anymore. With Surfshark Antivirus, not only will you have antivirus scans and real-time virus protection, but you'll also have access to a VPN. You'll be protected from targeted ads and tracking. You'll be notified if your data gets leaked by data brokers. And most importantly, it's incredibly easy to set up and use. If you feel like your online protection should be better, use the link in the description and episode notes to get 76% off Surfshark Antivirus today and feel safe every day on your devices. Hello, and welcome to the Essential Reads podcast. I'm Isaac, and my goal is to bring to you a bunch of audiobooks from your favourite classic authors such as Orson Welles, Robert Louis Stevenson, John Steinbeck, and many more. Come join me on this journey to help get these books to the masses in an easy, accessible way. Let's start. Montag ran. He could feel the hound. Like autumn, come cold and dry and swift. Like a wind that didn't stir grass that didn't jar windows or disturb leaf shadows on the white sidewalks as it passed. The hound did not touch the world. It carried its silence with it, so you could feel the silence, building up a pressure behind you all across town. Montag felt the pressure rising, and ran. He stopped for breath on his way to the river, to peer through dimly lit windows of wakened houses, and saw the silhouettes of people inside, watching their parlour walls, and there on the walls, the mechanical hound. A breath of neon vapour spidered along, here and gone, here and gone. Now, at Elm Terrace, Lincoln, Oak Park, and up the alley toward Faber's house. Go past, thought Montag. Don't stop. Go on. Don't turn in. On the parlour wall, Faber's house, with its sprinkler system pulsing in the night air. The hound paused, quivering. No! Montag held to the windowsill. This way! This way! Here! The procaine needle flicked out and in, out and in. A single, clear drop of the stuff of dreams fell from the needle as it vanished in the hound's muzzle. Montag held his breath like a doubled fist in his chest. The mechanical hound turned and plunged away from Faber's house down the alley again. Montag snapped his gaze to the sky. The helicopters were closer, a great blowing of insects to a single light source. With an effort, 
Montag reminded himself again that this was no fictional episode to be watched on his run to the river. It was in actuality his own chess game he was witnessing, move by move. He shouted to give himself the necessary push away from this last house window and the fascinating seance going on in there. Hell! And he was away and gone. The alley, a street, the alley, a street, and the smell of the river. Leg out, leg down, leg out, and down. Twenty million Montags, running soon, if the cameras caught him. Twenty million Montags, running. Running like an ancient flickery keystone comedy. Cops, robbers, chasers, and the chased. Hunters, and hunted. He had seen it a thousand times. Behind him now, twenty million silently baying hounds ricocheted across parlours. Three cushion shooting from right wall to centre wall to left wall, gone. Right wall, centre wall, left wall, gone. Montag jammed his seashell to his ear. Police suggest entire population in the Elm Terrace area do as follows. Every one in every house in every street, open a front or rear door, or look from the windows. The fugitive cannot escape if everyone in the next minute looks from his house. Ready? Of course! Why hadn't they done it before? Why, in all the years, hadn't this game been tried? Everyone up? Everyone out? He couldn't be missed. The only man running alone in the night city. The only man proving his legs. At the count of ten now. One. Two. He felt the city rise. Three. He felt the city turn its shoulders. He felt the city turn to its thousands of doors. Four. The people sleepwalking in their hallways. Five. He felt their hands on the doorknobs. The smell of the river was cool, like a solid rain. His throat was burnt rust, and his eyes were wept dry with running. He yelled as if this yell would jet him on, fling him the last hundred yards. Six, seven, eight. The doorknobs turned on five thousand doors. Nine. He ran out, away from the last row of houses, on a slope leading down to a solid moving blackness. Ten. The doors opened. He imagined thousands on thousands of faces, peering into yards, into alleys, and into the sky. Faces hid by curtains, pale, night-frightened faces, like grey animals peering from electric caves. Faces with grey, colourless eyes, grey tongues, and grey thoughts, looking out through the numb flesh of the face. But he was at the river. He touched it, just to be sure it was real. He waded in, and stripped in darkness to the skin, splashed his body, arms, legs, and head, with the raw liquor, drank it, and snuffed some up his nose. Then he dressed in Faber's old clothes and shoes. He tossed his own clothing in the river and watched it swept away. Then, holding the suitcase, he walked out in the river until there was no bottom, and he was swept away in the dark. He was three hundred yards downstream when the hound reached the river. Overhead, the great racketing fans of the helicopters hovered. A storm of light fell upon the river, and Montag dived under the great illumination, as if the sun had broken the clouds. He felt the river pull him further on its way into darkness. Then the lights switched back to the land, 
the helicopters swerved over the city again, as if they had picked up another trail. They were gone. The hound was gone. Now, there was only the cold river and Montag, floating at a sudden peacefulness, away from the city and the lights and the chase, away from everything. He felt as if he had left a stage behind, and many actors. He felt as if he had left the great seance and all the murmuring ghosts. He felt he was moving from an unreality that was frightening into a reality that was unreal because it was new. The black land slid by, and he was going into the country among the hills. For the first time in a dozen years, the stars were coming out above him in great processions of wheeling fire. He saw a great juggernaut of stars form in the sky and threaten to roll over and crush him. He floated on his back when the valleys filled and sank. The river was mild and leisurely, going away from the people who ate shadows for breakfast and steam for lunch and vapours for supper. The river was very real. It held him comfortably and gave him the time at last, the leisure to consider this month, this year, and a lifetime of years. He listened to his heart slow. His thoughts stopped rushing with his blood. He saw the moon low in the sky now. The moon there, and the light of the moon, caused by what? The sun, of course. And what lights the sun? Its own fire. And the sun goes on, day after day, burning and burning. The sun and time and burning. Burning. The river bobbled him along, gently, burning. The sun and every clock on earth, it all came together and became a single thing in his mind. After a long time of floating on the land and a short time of floating in the river, he knew why he must never burn again in his life. The sun burned every day. It burned time. The world rushed in a circle and turned on its axis and time was busy burning the years and the people anyway, without any help from him. So if he burned things, with the firemen, and the sun burned time, that meant that everything burned. One of them had to stop burning. The sun wouldn't, certainly, so it looked as if it had to be Montag, and the people he worked with until a few short hours ago. Somewhere, the saving and putting away had to begin again, and someone had to do the saving and keeping, one way or another, in books, in records, in people's heads, any way at all, so long as it was safe, free from moths, silverfish, rust and dry rot, and men with matches. The world was full of burning of all types and sizes. Now the guild of asbestos weaver was open shop very soon. He felt his heel bump land, touch pebbles and rocks, scrape sand. The river had moved him towards shore. He looked in at the great black creature without eyes or light, without shape, with only a size that went a thousand miles without wanting to stop, with its grass hills and forests that were waiting for him. He hesitated to leave the comforting flow of the water. He expected the hound there. Suddenly the trees might blow under a great wind of helicopters, but there was only the normal autumn wind, high up, going by like another river. Why wasn't the hound running? Why had the search veered inland? Montag listened. Nothing. 
Nothing. Millie, he thought. All this country here. Listen to it. Nothing and nothing. So much silence, Millie. I wonder how you'd take it. Would you shout, shut up, shut up! Millie. And he was sad. Millie was not here, and the hound was not here. But the dry smell of hay, blowing from some distant field, put Montag on the land. He remembered a farm he had visited when he was very young, one of the rare few times he discovered that somewhere behind the seven veils of unreality, beyond the walls of parlours, and beyond the tin moat of the city, cows chewed grass, and pigs swam in warm ponds at noon, and dogs barked after white sheep on a hill. Now, the dry smell of hay, the motion of the waters, made him think of sleeping in fresh hay in a lonely barn, away from the loud highways, behind a quiet farmhouse, and under an ancient windmill that whirred like the sound of passing years overhead. He lay in the high barn loft all night, listening to distant animals and insects and trees, the little motions and stirrings. During the night, he thought, below the loft, he would hear a sound like feet moving, perhaps. He would tense and sit up. The sound would move away. He would lie back and look out of the loft window very late in the night and see the lights go out in the farmhouse itself until a very young and beautiful woman would sit in an unlit window braiding her hair. It'd be hard to see her, but her face would be like the face of the girl so long ago in his past now, so very long ago, the girl who had known the weather and never been burned by fireflies, the girl who had known what dandelions meant rubbed off on your chin. Then she would be gone from the warm window and appear again upstairs in her moon-whitened room, and then, to the sound of death, the sound of jets cutting the sky in two black pieces beyond the horizon, he would lie in the loft, hidden and safe, watching those strange new stars over the rim of the earth, fleeing from the soft colour of dawn. In the morning, he would not have needed sleep, for all the warm odours and sights of a complete country night would have rested and slept him while his eyes were wide, and his mouth, when he thought to test it, was half a smile. And there, at the bottom of the hayloft stair waiting for him, would be the incredible thing. He would step carefully down, in the pink light of early morning, so fully aware of the world that he would be afraid and stand over the small miracle, and at last bend to touch it, a cool glass of fresh milk, and a few apples and pears laid at the foot of the steps. This was all he wanted now, some sign that the immense world would accept him and give him the long time he needed to think all the things that must be thought. A glass of milk, an apple, a pear. He stepped from the river. The land rushed at him, a tidal wave. He was crushed by darkness and the look of the country and the million odours on a wind that iced his body. He fell back under the breaking curve of darkness and sound and smell, his ears roaring. He whirled. The stars poured over his sight like flaming meteors. He wanted to plunge in the river again and let it idle him safely on down somewhere. This dark land rising was like that day in his childhood, swimming, when from nowhere the largest wave in the history of remembering slammed him down in the salt and mud and green darkness 
water burning mouth and nose, retching his stomach, screaming, too much water, too much land. Out of the black wall before him, a whisper, a shape. In the shape, two eyes, the night looking at him, the forest seeing him, the hound. After all the running and rushing and sweating it out and half drowning to come this far, to work this hard and think yourself safe and sigh with relief and come out on the land at last only to find the hound. Montag gave one last agonised shout as if this were too much for any man. The shape exploded away. The eyes vanished. The leaf piles flew up in a dry shower. Montag was alone in the wilderness. A deer. He smelled the heavy, musk-like perfume, mingled with blood and gummed exhalation of the animal's breath. All cardamom and moss and ragweed odour in this huge night, where the trees ran at him, pulled away, ran, pulled away, to the pulse of the heart behind his eyes. There must have been a billion leaves on the land. He waded in them, a dry river, smelling of hot clothes and warm dust. And the other smells. There was a smell like a cut potato from all the land, raw and cold, and white from having the moon on it most of the night. There was a smell like pickles from a bottle, and a smell like parsley on the table at home. There was a faint yellow odour, like mustard from a jar. There was a smell like carnations from the yard next door. He put down his hand and felt a weed rise up like a child brushing him. His fingers smelled of licorice. He stood breathing, and the more he breathed the land in, the more he was filled up with all the details of the land. He was not empty. There was more than enough to fill him. There would always be more than enough. He walked in the shallow tide of leaves, stumbling, and in the middle of the strangeness, a familiarity. His foot hit something that rang dully. He moved his hand on the ground, a yard this way, a yard that. The railroad track. The track that came out of the city and rusted across the land through forests and woods, deserted now by the river. Here was the path to wherever he was going. Here was the single familiar thing, the magic charm he might need a little while, to touch, to feel beneath his feet as he moved on into the bramble bushes and the lake of smelling and feeling and touching among the whispers and the blowing down of leaves. He walked on the track, and he was surprised to learn how certain he suddenly was of a single fact he could not prove. Once, long ago, Clarice had walked here where he was walking now. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please leave a review. And if you really want to support me, share this chapter with your friends, family, and whoever you feel would enjoy it. And if you really wish to support me, head to my Patreon. The link is in the episode notes. If you choose to follow the podcast, you'll have three new chapters per week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Once again, I thank you for listening. And until next time, bye-bye.